And, and how did you said, uh, get involved with uh, Rotary Connection? Wow, okay. And now we'll just turn the pages. <laughs> Let's see. You, you ever heard of Andre Williams? Yeah, Andre Williams had a record out called Bacon Fat and, uh, and a bunch of other things. He was the craziest motherfucker you ever want to meet. But I loved him to death. He was a sweetheart. He was talented. He was a wild man. He was a riverboat gambler kind of guy. You know, he could talk you into buying anything at any time, whether you had any money or not, you know. Uh, and he was a producer and a writer. And, uh, guy, he was born up on the street. He didn't have a mom and daddy, so he realized he could do music. So he got the music and had a couple of hits. Didn't make no money, but he learned how to con his way in and out of record companies and in and out of people's lives. So when I met Andre, I was fascinated by this guy. And, uh, we ended up working together, writing songs together, and he got me in the, he mixed up with the dramatics and rewrote, and wrote the, they just had a movie I called, uh, Detroit. With with the dramatics in it, and they they were singing my songs that Andre and I wrote. So anyway, uh, they were having a D. I was living in D- Detroit, staying at the same house Andre and some more people were at the rooming house. And what a rooming house! This is my girlfriend on the house. And they started, and a riot started. The Detroit riots in '67. It was some serious shit. So the curfew was on, and they said nobody leave. You know, the house after a certain time, and we had to get to the studio, and we couldn't. So we said, Andre said, listen, I got this car, I had this girl's car, I borrowed, let's move, let's go to Chicago, get away from the riot situation right now. And I got a deal with cut some things at Chess Records. So me and him, and a ranger named Dale Warren, we jump in Andre's girl's car, and he drives us to Chicago. We land in Chicago. Now, I always wanted to be in Chicago with Chess Records. I mean, this was one of my long-time dreams, you know. Not so much to be living in Chicago, but to be with Chess Records, because, I mean, they had giants recording for them, you know. And uh, so Billy Davis was the A&R guy there, a good, good friend, a guy I knew um, that was a, uh, once, once a writing partner of Barry Gordy. He was in the A&R and a chess. So anyway, one thing led to another. I cut a couple of people at chess, cut my songs. I wasn't interested in being a solo artist at that point, just a songwriter and producer. And uh, so Marshall Chess, whose daddy owned the label, uh, put together a psychedelic group because at that time it was a, the timing again was the whole thing. Psychedelic rock was starting to come over, seep over from England and develop on the West Coast. And, uh, so Marshall Chess had been in, out in the West Coast going to school and, you know, rich, rich kid, you know. Then when he came back, he said, he told his daddy he wanted to form a record label. And, uh, be part of chess, and, uh, he wanted to cut psychedelic bands on it. So he had a few group leases, uh, out records he leased from some, uh, bands in, uh, England, but they, they didn't, they weren't successful. So he said, I know what I want to do. I want to put together a concept thing of a, of a group that's just gospel, blues, R&B, country, whatever. I, and called it Rotary Connection. And didn't have no band there, but he had this concept. And so he approached Charles Stepney, and, uh, who was a ranger at Chess at the time. And, uh, they went to the studio and he recorded this, this concept, which was a 20, 28 piece orchestra with singers. And, and, uh, uh, the record songs that were songs of the day that were like, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, songs, John Sebastian songs, they were rock songs, cause that's what he was into. But he changed them around totally. And, and, and Charles Stephanie, who had, was a classically trained arranger, loved that idea because he was able to make those songs Give those songs a classical feeling. Well, they didn't have a band, okay? Usually, if a record comes out, it's of a band who was looking for a record deal. They got a record deal. They cut an album. They got a release. They had to go work. 
That wasn't the case of Rotary. Rotary was a concept that the record came out, the record started doing good. Now they had to put a band together. So the people that sang on the record became the band, uh, which was myself, Minnie, and three other people, three or four other people who were, who were the white people who had that. He wanted them because they had that folk country feeling to rock kind of feel to them. Minnie and I bought the soul to it. And it was Chuck Bogsdale that sang bass with the Dells. He was singing with us. And, and it's like I said, we were just background singers on the record. We were the only background singers. But the record took off like a rocket. And we had to have a band. Well, they looked at me because I was Charles uh, Chuck Bosley with the Dell, so he can't do it. it. It didn't make no sense for him to do it because this was this was Rotary Connection. This was some funny sounding stuff. Hardly anybody wanted to be a part of it because it was funny sounding. It was new. It was different. Nobody understood it. But the record was taken off because of that. So they looked at me because they said, you're the only one here that's been on the road, that's worked with people, that's put bands together and do up groups together. And been and you've been doing it in New York and with Jerry Clinton, put something together. So I took many and 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 there's other people that did the background singing who were also musicians. And I developed a group. So it turned out that in the long run, it was, everything it became very successful. The album was a success. The band was a success. We were opening for Janis Joplin, the Rolling Stone. We were opening for the biggest acts coming out of England, and, you know, and the biggest acts in in the U.S. You know, from nothing to that, which was my turn at success and uh, my turn to deal with it. You know, so. Wow, you must have been uh, having the time of your life right then. Yeah, it really opened my eyes. Well, it's funny because when I when I was doing the same thing in the back in the day, I was on the road with Little Richard and the Drifters and all those old those old you know the the doo wop you know the black singers. We were traveling in the old beat up station wagon, eating sardines in the back seat. Couldn't stay in no hotels on the road. Had to, you know, had to travel by night. Had to hope the car didn't break down. When you get to the gig, you hope you did have no dressing room. You had to change in the cars. All of a sudden, because it was five, what is it, bass player, it was like four white people and two black people in this new band, Rotary Connection. So we were considered a white band because the music was different. And they saw the white people and they just saw me and many, so it didn't matter. But everything changed. All of a sudden, we're being chauffeured around. Dressing rooms are supplied to us. We don't have to worry about fighting about getting paid. Well, you know, as much as we did. Uh, our accommodations were much better. We stayed in hotels. We had much cleaner and bigger halls and nightclubs to play in. It, it was just a totally night and day different thing. And there were many and I, many had very little experience on the circuit anyway. Uh, but she had only experienced places like the Regal Theater and a couple of, you know, black clubs in Chicago. So it, it was totally, and the band, this was new to them because they had never done anything. But, you know, play for each other. So, you know, I had, I was the only one with any kind of experience, so I kind of kept everything in line and going. But it was a, man, it was a, it was an experience I'll never forget. Now, from that, from that rotary connection, we were so different and successful that it was another one of those things of people copying us. And a lot of things, we were the first integrated rock group. Uh, on the East Coast. I guess Fly was the first on the West Coast. But, uh, we, from us being from Chicago and being what we were, we grabbed people like Shaka and Donnie and uh, Maurice White and those kids saw the light in us. And they went, wait a minute. 
We don't want to do what we're doing no more. What we want to do what you guys are doing. And all of a sudden, many. And all of a sudden, they all knew many, you know, from Chicago. And she was just a little girl. They worked at Chess Records that, you know, had a couple of records out. And of course, they looked, people looked up to her. But now, she's opening for Janis Joplin. Hey, singing those high notes when she started out. The high note that she did was cool, but the black audience didn't want to hear that stuff really, you know. They wanted some singing, you know. We singing folks. But she started doing that high thing. And she luckily, she did it by accident while we were cutting the rotary record. And Mar- and, and, and Chess heard it and went, what is that? And she went, oh, it's just something I'm doing, you Miss Rand. He said, you're going to do that. You're going to put this on the record. So that's how many started with her, using her high thing. Because she was really ashamed to use it. So we did the shows. She didn't want to do it. She said, I'm not doing it on stage. Because when she did it on stage before, people didn't understand it. And it didn't go nowhere. So she didn't do it. So we hired a, we hired a Thurman. You you know what a Thurman is? Yeah, you use them in horror movies. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where her voice was sounding to folks. So we hired a Thurman and boy on stage, and Marshall played it. And after that night, Minnie said, you're not going to use that thing in your wet machine anymore. I'm going to do it. And after she realized that the white kids were dropping acid, and this was, this was, Something to them that they had never heard before. They loved it. You know, they wanted more. And uh, so she said, no, I'm I'm doing it from now on. And that's what made her. Yeah. It was so different that that she didn't even understand it. Crazy, huh? That was great perspectives, and he appreciate that, especially on thinking about, you know, young Maurice Whites and Shaka Khans and, and, and that, picking that up. Um, for the listeners and, and viewers, I want to just uh, quickly state, um, so Rotary Connection put out, uh, I count, six albums from 67 to 71, and the first one uh, went to number 37 on the charts, and the third one, Peace, uh, went to 24 on the charts. Right. Now, well, there was a second one, Aladdin, that didn't do well, but it was uh, the fans loved it. You know, and then there was the Christmas album that supposedly did well because we sure did a lot of interviews and gigs behind it. Then it started going downhill. There's a lot of reasons why it started going downhill at a certain point. Because for one thing, it wasn't a band. It was a concept. And Marshall didn't know how to keep the concept going. On one hand, you had the albums that were sounding a certain way with 27 pieces and a couple of few singers. Marvelous arrangement. Then you had the live act, which was me and Minnie in a little band, a little three-piece, four-piece band. You know, so it had to clash at one point. You know, um, they didn't know... The record company called us into a meeting and they said, we do not know what to do with you guys. We don't know how to classify you. We don't know how to promote you. In the meantime, Chess is going through changes because, you know, Leonard Chess got sick and he died of a heart attack and, 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 and Marshall was taking all his acid and it was a lot of problems within the, the company. Uh, Muddy was feeling well and, you know, they were talking about selling the company. And so when it first started out, Rotary was a concept. But what threw people up was when we put the band together, I put together a rock band because that's, boom, that's where the music was hidden. But they didn't want us to cut rock records. And they didn't want to keep doing the same concept, concept. Now, when Maurice White heard it, or when Maurice White saw us, he called a meeting with me and Minnie, and he said, listen, I want to start a group called Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I want you and, I want you and Minnie in the band, and I want to play drums. He said, because I think I can make it happen. And we said, no, we didn't want to, because we knew Rotary was breaking up, but we didn't want to do it with Maurice, because it was going backwards. Maurice wanted an all-black band. 
and we were considered, we, we had broken out of that mold where we couldn't stay at certain hotels and couldn't play no, nowhere but the children's circuit. We didn't want to do that no more. We didn't realize that a whole new genre was opening up and that Maurice was the kind of guy he was. We didn't, we didn't really see Maurice's direction. We were, we were just hurt because Rotary was breaking up and Maurice wanted to come in and take over. So we didn't and, uh, he eventually said, okay, I'm gonna just go ahead and do it my own way. I'm gonna get Philip to say hi and I'm gonna play congas and do a little singing. And I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea because, you know, you're the only guy that I, in my mind, I can see doing it. So he did it. And well, the rest is history. But he kept calling me, and he called, last time he called me to do something, he said, I've got my first independent production deal with Columbia to do, produce Denise Williams. Well, we both knew Denise and were big fans. And he said, but the catch is, I want you, me, and Denise to do all the background singing on her first two albums. Because, number one, I always wanted to sing with you. Number two, you inspired me to do what I'm doing. And number three, it, I know we can have some great fun. So I said, fine, since I ain't got to obligate myself to a group. Yeah, and I like Denise. Yeah. And uh, Stephanie was their range, of course. Yeah. Well, he said, I'm not going to do it with you. I do want to do it with uh, Philip because then it would sound too much like uh, Earth Wind and Fire, and I don't want that to happen right there. And plus, like I, you know, he, he and I always wanted to sing together anyway, doing something. So that was that chance. So I did her, his, his first independent production, which, uh, turned out to be a platinum thing. And, uh, the record Free, you heard of that, right? I love that record, yeah. Yeah, that's me and her, me and Denise and, and Maurice singing background. And we did the first three albums together. So I'm very proud of that. And, um, so I also toured with Denise later. I did the Johnny Mathis part to too much too little too later with her on tour. So um that's that's the Rotary story. And then I toured with Minnie for a while after uh you know, she left Rotary. And uh that's I enjoyed doing that, you know, 'cause I was uh, I uh, supporting my my friends and hanging out with them without being responsible for for anything, you know. Let, let me ask you about uh, Charles Stepney. He was, uh, of course, a great mentor for Maurice White uh, and helped them develop their sound in the 70s and become a platinum act. What what was he like? How did he strike you? Charles, Charles and I were very, very good friends. Uh, when I met Charles, he was another one of those guys. Charles worked at Chess Records not as a full fledged arranger because he was fresh out of school. I think he went to Berkeley and he was studied wherever he went he went study classical. So he was a nerd. Stone, the first black nerd I'd ever met, but I didn't know what nerds were, but that's now realizing man, that's what he was. Classically trained went to chess records to try to just make some extra money as a copyist. Now if you know what a copyist is, copyist is a guy who takes the arranger's arrangements and copies them onto certain pages for different musicians that are going to play in the orchestra. It's a very complicated job, and you got to be very high-end to do it. So that's what Stephanie's job at chess. He didn't like it very well because he was classically trained, but he couldn't get a job. They hired, so his high chess hires him as a copyist. He's a young guy, okay. He don't know nothing about rock and roll. You know, all he knows is classical music. So he and I got tight because not too many other people wanted to hang around with him because he was too intellectual. But when 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 Charles got the idea to do Rotary Connection, he knew it was so different that he had he knew getting a guy like Stephanie that needed the experience and was classically trained would would have an opportunity to do anything he wanted to do musically. He knew that was going to be something. Now, I'll tell you something else that's funny. I was reading uh, Billboard magazine 
which I do, which I've been doing for years, for forever. It's a music magazine. Uh, Elton John, they had an interview on Billboard magazine, Elton's 25th anniversary in the music business. And they asked him specifically what made him think he could mix classical and rock and roll and make it work. And it's right there in print. It said, he, uh, Elton said, when I heard what Charles Stephanie did with Rotary Connection, then I knew it could be done. And I got that, uh, that article is dear to me. I eliminated it and got it on my wall in the office. But the, 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 we, we, he inspired, we inspired, because he mentioned Rotary Connection along with Charles. And, and uh, so that inspired him, but it inspired a lot of other people. Now, what I saw in Charles, I didn't see it then. Nobody saw it then. Uh, and we did the session, and we had never heard anybody do classical to rock because at the time, um, Mar- uh, Marshall Chess would give uh, give Stephanie the records. Stephanie had to learn the records by, like a Rolling Stone by, you know, Bob Dylan. He had to learn the record. Then he had to transpose it into a classical arrangement. And that's what he did. That made all of us so in awe of him. And so we knew this guy had to be a genius. And when you're, especially after you heard the album, I mean, he had, he had music coming out of the walls. You know, this was his chance to shine, and God damn it, he shone, you know. So, the record, when the record, you know, people heard it, they heard Charles's gift coming to light. They heard Minnie's gift coming to light. And they heard there's some records that they were familiar with being done a whole different and interesting way. It just knocked everybody out. So, Charles, Charles grew. Now, when Maurice heard it, he, of course, he was impressed too, but he didn't, Maurice didn't hear it until he saw the group. When he saw, we played on, when, at the time, Maurice was playing drums for Ramsey Lewis's jazz band. We opened for jazz, Rotary Connection opened for Ramsey at a little black college in Southside Chicago in 69. We had just gotten off the road with Janice. We were hot, and nobody, and nobody had seen us in Chicago like that, especially the black kids, because they wouldn't come to the south, to the north side. And 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 uh, Maurice hadn't seen us because he was busy playing with Ramsey. Now we were considered a novelty act when we were so new, so they booked this old black college. They wanted, you know, they wanted Ramsey Lewis to come and perform for them. And uh, so Chess says, well, if you're going to take Ramsey, you might as well take this Rotary Connection act we got. You've never seen it. in a Chicago act. So, and the kids had already heard about us, but they hadn't seen us. Well, we opened for Ramsey, which was the wrong thing to do, because we, like I said, had just come off the hottest tour of our life, and Ramsey is a little jazz player. It blew everybody away. The crowd went crazy. Ramsey, it was hard for him to come back on and do a show after that. And that's when Maurice came and had the meeting with Minnie and I and said, listen, we're going to, I'm going to do what you guys are doing, you know. And that's, that's how Earth Wind and Fire started. And when he, and he uh, took, uh, he, he tried doing it without an arranger because he had to wait until, uh, Chess had tied up Stepney in a contract. So Stepney could, couldn't do anything with Maurice until his contract was up. So before, so before that, Maurice was doing things with different other arrangers. I think he did something with, with Tom, Tom Washington, and some more stuff. And it, the music wasn't tight. You know, it wasn't just wasn't right. It wasn't at time. But when uh, when Charles had the, the chance to do with 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 uh, uh, Maurice. Then Maurice had a chance to, to to hold Stephanie back from being so bodacious with this arrangement, and the combination of Maurice and Charles with Maurice's songs 
is what made it, made it happen. Uh, because if you listen to Charles' arrangement and production of Minnie's Come to My Garden album, it's still too much music. You know, Charles was a classical guy, and when they gave him a chance to beat Charles Stephanie, he was over-classical. Nobody held him back. Maurice held him back and gave him form and uh, said, we want to do this like this. And that, and so Charles had to back up, you know. I tried to do it with him, but I was so in awe of where he was going. I said, shit, I'm going to just let him do what he's he doing. But Maurice had another vision. So we didn't realize that Charles was a genius until we heard uh, uh, what he did with Rotary. We didn't realize how great he was going to be until we realized what he had done with uh, uh, Minnie's first album. And then, 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 uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire's first album. So Charles gradually grew on people too. But definitely a genius. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, when he passed away in the mid 70s, in my, in my opinion, Earth, Wind, and Fire's sound was never quite the same after that. It never was, because Tom Tom came in and he tried to emulate, uh, Charles, and it couldn't happen. And, uh, the same. And then other people came around, and everybody everybody tried to emulate it, and it kind of stuck. Yeah, there was something there that stuck. It wasn't the same, but it stuck, which is good, which molded that sound, you know, that Earthway Fire sound, which was, until the end, a whole lot of Charles Stepney, you know. Now, Sid, Thank God for Charles Stepney. Now, Sid, one, one of the biggest uh, groups of fans of Truth and Rhythm, the show that I do here, are P-Funk fans, and so we got to talk about what happened uh, between Rotary Connection and the later mini Ripperton and Denise Williams record, and you being part of uh, the Mothership Connection and all that, so talk a little bit about what was happening then and how you got involved with that. Well, like I said, George and I, I mean, I'm always in touch with George. I know where he is and what he's doing, so I, I, I was, when George saw what I, that's Oh, getting back to a point, George didn't know where he really wanted to go with his parliament, and he saw Rotary. He saw Rotary and heard many, and, and he said, that's what I wanted to do. So he called me up one day, and he said, Sidney, he, he said, I'll meet you downtown, uh, Broad Market, and, uh, as downtown Newark. And I get there, and George has got a sheet on and a mohawk. And kids are, kids are all gathered around him, and nobody wants to beat him up. And he said, that's when I knew, he said, you had to see this shit. He said, this is something new. And, and when he saw, see, when I did the thing with Rotary, I went from, you know, being a performer that did R&B, that had a slick hair, and wore suits, and your shoes always shine. I, I went out and got new wardrobe for me and Minnie. I put on boots. I had a cape, had a big old hat on with a feather in it, and I had all these beads and shit. And I bought Minnie this huge wig and this tie-dye dress. And black people weren't dressing like that. So I was new. And I wasn't, and we didn't have routines. I told my group, I told Rotary, don't worry about routines. Just worry about playing and do whatever on stage you feel like doing. And just play good. You know, because they weren't good musicians. So they did it, and, and it caught on because people went, wow, they're just open, you know. So when Joy saw that, when Maurice saw that, they said, that's the shit we want to do. We're tired of emulating, you know. We want to do what Rotary Connections doing. So that's when Shaka said, I'm dropping my other shit. I'm doing, I'm going to sing what y'all singing. You know, and Donnie said, well, I'm going to get a little looser, too. You know, so that started a whole movement of especially Chicago kids uh, of of uh, being different. Because they said, before us, it was you can't be different because you're black. And when Rotary hit, they went, as long as you're around some white folks, you can be different. So... They ever feel back to being different then. So I got to take credit for some of that, you know. And uh, so 
the George, like I said, when they come to town, we always hang out together. I was with George on one of his first uh, trips to Chicago after he went crazy uh, and uh, went down to see him at this club, the black club. And and uh, it was about 25 people in the audience. And George jumped up on the table with his sheet and scared the hell out of everybody. You know, but the band was so good and the singing was so good. And people were standing on the outside looking into the club. Now, that's, that George like that. He said, that means I got something. So every time he'd come to town and I could, I'd go and I'd sing with him on stage. Or, or he'd call me and I'd go where he was and we'd write some songs and we'd go in the studio. So I'd just hang around and do background with him in the studio. So I was always there, you know. I was always part of the band. The band always knew me out. They always called me up and because they were kids to us, you know. And they'd always call me and they'd, they'd, you know, if they had a beef with George or a beef with anything, they'd call Uncle Sid. You know, we told, we still do that. I still talk Billy Bass. We talk a lot, you know, and, and lies, the bass player. I talk to these guys all the time. So, and George, um, he's, he's, we're always there. He's always glad to see me and I'm always glad to see him. Let's put it that way. So, as the end goes, he, we, we always say, once, man, if anything ever happened to you, I'm, I'm through. Yeah. So, it's the same thing with him. If, if he did not, not if he's not in the business anymore, but if one of us dies and the other one is, it's going to be close behind because we're too musically connected, you know. That's why, that's why when he sees me, I see him, and we're doing, and we're feeling good, then, uh, we're comfortable with life, you know. Well, the, the Mothership Connection, in my opinion, is the greatest funk album of all time, and I have on my wall behind where I am right now is an actual, uh, gold record award for that album and the, and the single chair of the roof off, so I mean, that's how much I love that record. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on, I'm on that whole album. In fact, I just happened to show up at this, at this judge. I had like a top, uh, uh, what was it, uh, um, telepathy thing. I just knew George was trying to get in touch with me. So I got in touch with him and he said, you gotta come on down right away. I'm cutting this new album. I've got a, my first independent production company. Uh, everything's really paid for big time. It was with, uh, uh, Casablanca. And so I flew down and we're in the studio and I, I, I I did that whole album with him, you know. Uh, we want the funk and shit. I, and it was, I said, George, this shit's kind of, this is a little bit too different. I don't know. He said, trust me. So I knew right then, you know, it had some. So I did hand claps. I played tambourine. I think they only got me on the album as a hand clap, but I'm on everything on that album. And uh, so after that, this shit changed uh, drastically for George because he finally had a record company behind him that was putting some money into him, you know. And uh, they wanted a black version of uh, Kiss, you know, and it was George. So, yeah, it's one of my favorite records. And now that once I listened to it and realized what it was, because when I was doing it, you know, uh, when you're doing something that different, you don't, you just look at it as being so different. Yeah, you don't understand it right then. But I learned to to understand anything George is doing because I know whatever he's doing is right. That's why I like him so much, you know, because he ain't never wrong with his music. Well, that's what's so great about that music back then, too, the, the Funkadelic and the, and the Parliament stuff. A lot of it you'd have to listen to a lot of times for it to finally click. And when it clicked, right. and when it, clicked it was genius. Right, and we and we both discovered that visually it had something to do with it too. You had to look like you were some. You had to be out from outer space. You had to sound like you had to make people, especially black people at that time, because there were no black people from outer space or going to space. Yeah, so when we could give them that feeling, that's what we did with Rotary with many with that high thing, and I tried to do that on stage. We tried to take them to another place, you know. And uh George, I remember I was in Chicago, and George called me and he said, you, you got to come to Gary this, this week, Gary Indiana this weekend, because I got a spaceship. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm breaking it out on stage. And I'm going, crazy shit. What are you talking about? And he goes, you'll see. You got to come. So he flies me down there. And uh, wherever it was, I forget where it was, the fucking baddest shit I've ever seen in my life. And I was so much of it, in awe of it, I didn't understand it until I saw it, the depth of it, at at the Coliseum in L.A. It blew my mind, you know. So he he always said, man, you know, I have to give you credit for a lot of this stuff I'm doing, Sid, because, you know, you started me on it, so... You know, he made sure I was always there for things. And I always made sure that I was always there for things. It's like he's going to retire soon this year, and I want to be there in his last show, if I can, in the state. And I also would like to be there when he accepts the uh, Life Achievement Award, if I can. So, you know, if not, though, I told him already, you know, that... Yeah, I loved him and I and I wanted to be there. So whatever. If I'm not there, as long as I'm there later on in the studio doing some singing with him, that'd be cool too. What What do you think it is about him that he was able to sort of uh, be the ringmaster of that organized chaos so well back then? Uh, we're well, kind of. We're cut from the same cloth. So I was always the guy growing up and in high school with the Herb Creamsters and Marvin Gaye's on folks. There was, I'm always the guy that was putting people together, telling them what to sing, giving them songs to sing, giving them the steps to dance to, and telling them what to do on stage. So George is that same way. And very few guys are like that. Uh, and, and that's why we connected. Because when he saw that I was able to do that with Rotary, and I saw he was able to do that with Parliament, then we got tighter, you know. So you have to, you have to be ordained more or less by the universe, <laughs> you know, given the power of creativeness and to do it to a point to where others say, show me how to do that. I want you to teach me how to do that. I want to be around you while you're doing that. Will you allow me to be around you while you're doing that? Will you show me how to do that? And George and I are the kind of guys that can see the good ones and say, okay, you get over here and do this. You get over there and do that. And you two get over there and do that together. You know, we've always been able to do that, and we watch each other do it, and that's what we do. So he's he's just been ordained. He was always the guy writing the songs. If not, he was always the one writing the best songs. He was not only the guy singing, but he was one of the guys who was, had the best voice. So he knew how to delegate stuff. You know, that's what you got to do. You got to be uh, you got to be open enough to recognize what other people do and, and delegate what you think they should do and have them respect you enough to do it and make it work. It's like vibrating on a very uh, special, unique frequency. Yeah, it's like the bass player in the Funkadelic. He tells me when I see him, I go, man, I dug what you're playing tonight. He said, well, man, I'm always just trying to impress you. When I see you come around, that's that's my main goal that night is to impress Uncle Sid. You know, because when I talk to him on the phone, any of them, first thing they say is, man, we just trying to do what you taught us to do. You know, we just want to keep the legacy going. So that's, and that's the same thing with George. By George being a little younger than me, he kind of, he always looked up to me, realizing that I'm also looking up to him. So, and there's not too many other people that we, either of us can look up to like that, that have been knowing each other that long, you know. So I'm, I'm proud to be in that category. And if, and if Maurice was still around, he and I would be talking regularly, doing things too. So, you know, just random things. Tell me about uh, foot stomping music. Uh, what do you want to know about it? <laughs> well, that's uh, uh, the Sidney Barnes album that came out in 78. And um, so you were able to do your own thing and put out a record. Well, what what happened was I was hanging, hanging, hanging out with George in L.A. And uh, I think we were doing up for the downstroke. He had new management. 
And they said, send me, why don't you cut our album? And I'm saying, well, I don't have a deal. And they said, we'll get you a deal. So they got me a label deal with uh, a, a company that was connected to the same label that uh, George's label was connected with. But as soon as my album was finished, that album's distribution line was dropped from the label. So the record was never officially released with a big bang, although it did well overseas. Um, but it has some good stuff in it. They wanted me to cut a disco record. Uh, I didn't want to cut a disco record. So I did a mixture. I did, I just took a bunch of guys that I knew and hung around with. And, uh, we didn't have no arranger. You know, we just had, we just got together and just played stuff. You know, and I wasn't serious about it because I didn't like the situation the record company was in, and I didn't like a couple of things that were happening. And so I just cut an album, you know. And um, it sounded pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't, wasn't the best I could have done. But I look back on it now, and I say, you know, for all my, out of my 50-year career, I've only had one solo album, and it, that didn't really come out. You know, like it should have. Now, I'd, I've done uh, five Rotary albums, you know, and I had a bunch of singles come out when I was doing solo in New York. And uh, I've written a bunch of things that have been on the charts and had a disco record out, Love and Desire, that did good, you know, but I never had a solo album. So um, that's what that was foot stomping music. Kind of proud of it. Um, I I don't like the cover. I had another idea for the cover, and uh, we had a big argument over that. Um, the record cut some record some 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 retailers wouldn't stock it because at the time it was too risque. Um, so it was it was a nice album, you know. Right after I cut it, I said. You know, I forgot about it. And I went on the road with Minnie doing, she was uh, promoting uh, Loving You, and we played Vegas and some other things. So, yeah, I've always been, uh, I, you know, I've had done commercials, and I had a big, I had a nice little gig going for a while doing uh, radio and TV commercials, making good money. So, I never really, you know, worried whether something made it or not. I just go to the, do it and go to the next thing, you know. With all these experiences that you've had, Sid, what, what would you say was one or two of your most memorable experiences being out on the stage somewhere? Uh, coming, coming off stage after opening for Joplin for Janice in, 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 I think it was her home, uh, it's in Texas, her home state. Place was packed. And I, we had just, Turn the stage up for her. Opening, we're opening for for Janice, and 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 I and I'm sitting, so I'm I'm standing at the edge of the stage, and, and right behind the curtain, and I'm looking over at her, and I'm looking at the crowd, and she turns around and she sees me, and sitting there, and, and she smiles at me, and I realize I just we I have arrived. Next point was. After one of the gigs with her, because remember at the time, besides the Rolling Stones, she was the hottest thing out there. So we're sitting in, me and Minnie and Janis Joplin are sitting in the limo backstage getting ready to leave the stadium. And all these kids are around the suit, there's limo, shaking it. They just want to touch it because we're in it. Or at least she's in it. And she reaches in her her bag on the floor and she pulls out a Southern Comfort bottle. She takes a big swig out of it. Then she passes it to me. I'm in the middle. I take a swig out of it and pass it to Minnie. Minnie takes a swig out of it and passes it back. And the kids outside the car are going nuts because they're watching this. And they love us. And the Janice is in the car. And I'm in the car. And I'm just saying, man, if this ain't the shit, if I don't get no high, it didn't do no more than this. You know, this is this is it. Um, a couple of those big gigs. I know, I think flying in, in the helicopter to... To the Texas International Pop Festival and seeing these hundreds of thousands of people on, under me, strapped, barely strapped into this thing because it's a Rolling Stones, uh, um, 
uh, Rolling Stone did a U.S. tour, and we were part of the one of the bands on the tour, and, and it was, so that was that was the Trump saying the only only the big stars do this shit. You know? uh, there were other times when I realized when I'm in the studio singing a first record with Motown, and my buddy gets hoarse and he can't sing the note. And Eddie Kendrick walks into the studio and says, I'll sing it. I, I've been listening to the song, so I know how it goes. So very good, he goes, take six, da-da-da-da. And I look around, and I'm standing next to Eddie Kendrick singing all the into the fucking mic. It, 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 you know, it's like I, I've, I've had dozens, I've had hundreds of those kind of experiences. Oh, or... Or I'm on, I'm doing uh, we're doing the finale at the Fillmore East with Sly. Well, you know we opened for Sly at Fillmore East, big show, and there's a finale, and we're all on stage together. And I was a big, huge fan of Sly, and I'm going, I just burned the stage up for this for these people, and and, and Sly burned it up for these people, and I'm one of them, you know. And it was like, sheesh. You know, damn, I got to keep going, you know. Oh, it was many times. It was sitting in meetings at Motown listening to Barry, Barry Gordy tell us something, you know. Uh, or, or being, just just being. Every every year it was something new. And I wanted that to continue. That's why I've spent the last 50 years doing it. And I'm still doing it. But now I'm like the old man on the hill, you know. Young kids come and sit around at my foot, at my, at Neil, at my foot, you thing, and go, uh, I'm gonna see it, tell us about the good old days, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Or, 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 or people like Scott call me and say, tell me all about it, Sid, yeah. <laughs> did, did you get to meet Hendrix? I met Jimmy before he was Jimmy Hendrix. I met Jimmy, uh, we weren't close. But I was at a party in Harlem one night, and I went to this hotel, and where the party was, and there was this kid over in the corner, and he was playing the hell out of guitar, he didn't have no amplifier, nothing. And I went and stood there like everybody else was standing there looking at him, and I'm going, this kid is fantastic. And I introduced myself, and he introduced himself, and after the party was over, he was still there playing. And uh, I met him a couple of times after that, backstage at the Apollo, uh, backstage at some club or something. I was, uh, I was on, when I was on the road with Lil Richard, with the Fiestas, he was playing with Lil Richard. And, hey, buddy, hey, what was happening to other, we weren't, we weren't, neither one of us were stars or anything, but, uh, and that was another, that was another big thrill of mine. You asked me what was the highlight was going back, I started my career out by meeting people at the Howard Theater. And when I joined the Fiestas, we had a big hit out called So Fine. We were touring with uh, Little Richard and the Drifters and all those people, and we played the Howard Theater, which is in my old hometown. And we had a standing ovation. And that was a very big highlight because that was my hometown. That was a place I used to say, I used to hang out backstage and try to get, you know, look into the theater to to get a glimpse of the acts around it. So that was um I forgot the question was there. About meeting Hendrix but, was the first question, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. So we uh, so I mentioned to him that we had met he went, Yeah, man, 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 man. So, like I said, we weren't big stars then. So that was a little before he went to Europe and uh a little before while I was it was before Rotary and before the Hendrix experience. So we were just guys meeting each other. And he was, but he was always, I remember I passed the restaurant one time and I heard him in that plant. The door was, he was, the door was a little child. He's sitting there. And he wasn't using the toilet, but he was, that's where he had gone to close himself off, you know, to play the guitar. He was always playing the guitar. So he had to be as good as he did because that's all he did. Yeah, you know, I think it was why he take a bath and maybe eat something. You know, I go to the bathroom, but uh, and then he was still playing the guitar when he did that. So, yeah, he's a great guy, man. Quiet. He was another one of those things that had to happen because for him happening, it opened up the 
the doors and ideas of a lot of black kids who wanted to play guitar but wasn't sure they should. A lot of white kids are playing uh, uh, that weren't playing guitar yet but wanted to. And a lot of people that wanted that knew it was another place to go to as a musician but didn't know how to get there until they heard him. So he was one of them things that had to happen. And I kind of felt it when I met him, you know. That's why I had to introduce myself. Yeah, he had that aura about him, right? Yeah, yeah, he had. If you knew anything about auras, you definitely felt it with guys like him. Even George, you know. You know, you kind of know it when you meet him, you know. There's something happening here, you know. And I, I was always looking for that. Because I'd always latch on to those people as if I could and uh, hang around with them or do some music with them. But uh, Jimmy had a scary aura. I didn't want to be around it too much. I just wanted to admire it, you know. And there are a lot of people I've met like that. So, Sid, I really appreciate all this time and all these great stories. I could talk to you forever, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, you know, you know. I got, I got. I want to bring us up to date with uh, some of the stuff you've been, you've been doing. I know you got some new music and um, some new projects going on. Well, so yeah, I got, a, I got, yep, yeah, I got. Uh, it took me three years, but I wrote my autobiography, and it's fifty plus pages, one hundred fifty plus pages. Of, no, five, five hundred pages. I'm sorry, and uh, I talk about as much as I can. In it, and, uh, like I said, I had to call up people in, I had to go over to England and talk to those people, find out what I did. Uh, but I got that. I'm always writing, so I got a truckload of songs. I'm trying to do things with now. I got uh, my own label, and of course, that's, it's so much different. Uh, so many opportunities now for the independent artist, writer, to get his stuff out there, so, uh, uh, you know, Spotify and Amazon Music and, so I've got music I'm getting ready to put out. I've got an album, 15 songs. George is on one of the songs with me. And uh, so hopefully after George retires and my thing comes out, I can have him come do some guest things with me because I'm, I'm sure he'll be glad to get out and do things occasionally. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hanging. I had a bad, I had a not serious back operation last year. And uh, so I'm, I'm still learning to rewalk. Now, right after the back operation, I flew to England and did three concerts. So every year I go to Europe, the wife and I fly out to, to England because I got a huge uh, fan base over there, which is very exciting to me because I thought in 2001, I thought it was all over. Yeah, so I'm an old man now, I got a day job, don't nobody know what the fuck I did. I was, I had fun. So what? Well, you know, come see, come see, you know. Uh, I got a phone call from England that changed everything. So now, now I got a re- rejuvenated uh, career. Uh, got the book going. Uh, I got uh, very uh, several different musical projects uh, coming out. Uh, George told me the other day he wants to come down. Uh, uh, after this is, uh, all over and, and, uh, we got a couple albums we got to work on and, uh, write some new songs. Uh, so I, and I'm looking for some new talent to work with. Uh, everybody says, Sydney, Sam, you, you discovered another mini ripper. And so I got my, kind of got my eye open for that. And, uh, just doing a lot of interviews, I got a, uh, um, the publicist got in Phil, Phil Brown out of Texas, and he knows a lot of people. He's opening a lot of doors, so I'm doing a lot of interviews now. Uh, with my, I expect my album when it comes out, uh, my, I got a two song single coming out next month, and, uh, I've got an album, a 16 song album coming out, oh, maybe late summer, and, uh, so I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews and, 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 um, Recouping, you know, rehabbing, and learning to walk again, and and uh, you know, if that hasn't stopped me from writing uh, or singing, because I'm still doing little shows here and there, and uh, so I'm having a ball, man. Still got people calling me every day asking me, you know, about things, and uh, you know, getting getting encouragement and and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm still glad to be. 
a productive part of the music industry and getting finally getting letting people know what I did and how appreciative I am that they've enjoyed anything I've been connected with. Well, that uh, two-song single, People Come On and Old School Music, uh, People Come On is a real interesting uh, blend of sort of like uh, old school Temptations kind of thing with current sounds, and um, that's a that's a pretty cool track. It has, yes. A guy named Paul Petto uh, in uh, Australia. He's got his own studio, and he's into uh, electro, electro, electronic dance music, which I'm into too. And uh, we, uh, he sent me the track, and I heard the track, and I had wrote, immediately wrote the song. And uh, we decided, hey, we've had it for a couple of years working on it, you know. And he also did the track that I'm doing with George, that George is on. So I got different people from different parts of the world sending me tracks that I write songs to because that's what I love to do. And what's the name of the book and where can people find it? The book is called, uh, uh, right now, I'm, okay, the book is called Standing on Solid Ground. Uh, it's, for, it's, a, it's The title is from a song that I recorded over in England uh, the first year I was over there. And um, it, it's, you can get it on, you can order it through Amazon.com. I've, I've, I've got to order some more so people can order them, but... Um, if you can, you know, if they go there and it's not there, you can't get it, just keep on trying. I'm also getting the website together. So just keep Googling uh, Sydney Barnes, and somewhere along the way, uh, you'll find a place to sell it. But I, I saw a few on Amazon.com, and I'm trying to get that site back up together. So that's where you can get that. And like I said, I'm trying to get a website. So I'll, I'll, I'll always post on Facebook what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do. Because this band, this new act, I, this in, in 2020, I'm going to be in shape again to get back on stage and do some serious touring. So that's what this whole thing I'm preparing for now is about, you know. That's awesome, Sid. That's uh, so good to hear. And uh, so I got a long way to go yet. I'm, I'm so full of energy, you know, it's crazy. That's the way we roll, you know. And I certainly appreciate you uh, uh, asking me. Because I'm proud of what I've done, and, and I do it all again, and I did it for people. You know, I just love to see people touched by music and love and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I appreciate you making this happen, and I wish you really good uh, continued recovery, uh, and, and good luck with the new music and all that you're doing. Hey, welcome back to the studio. I hope you enjoyed those tales and getting to know more about one of the unsung musical figures of the rock and soul era. His recollections were engrossing, and with age 80 staring him in the face, he still has the energy and passion of an 18-year-old. I had fun with him and learned a lot, too, just what truth and rhythm is all about. A giant thanks again to Sidney Barnes for sharing his escapades and his time. Also, a sincere thank you to you, the viewers, as always, for watching or listening, however you Taking your truth and rhythm, it's much appreciated. And if you don't already subscribe, make sure you do so. Subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where truth and rhythm lives and breathes. Also, uh, special editions like quick takes. And you get the shows before anybody else if you subscribe for free. What a deal. Also, write me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know what you like about the show, who else you'd like to see. Just whatever is on your mind, musically speaking, hit me with it. I'm all about talking music with you. This is also your show, so participate. And with that, as always, this is Scott, Dr. Jake Skullfine, saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.